All right, our first question, Genesis okay. 20. So I, I was just thinking, I guess, comment on it, it's more of a comment than a question, but this, this whole uh, passage, just the good that came out of this encounter, you know, so when people say, well, Abraham is sinning and this is evil and wicked, but you see clearly the hand of God in what's taking place here in, in that one, he establishes to the people in the land, the king and everyone else, because his officials as well are afraid that they should not mess with Abraham or his household. Okay. So there's the fear put into the people that this man is a prophet, and that's confirmed through a word from God, a very vivid dream, and then a word from the Lord that brings fear both to the king and to the people. So it establishes him as someone that they should not touch and that they shouldn't mess with. Secondly, it also it adds wealth to Abraham because he gives him all of these uh, gifts uh, as a way of, of blessing him. And then the third thing is that it also, before the birth of Isaac, vindicates the innocence of Sarah yeah. and establishes her as a pure and a chaste woman so that it, not only in the household, which would have been known, but also in the land as well, so that when Isaac is born, there's no doubt that Isaac is the product of Abraham and Sarah yes. and not some other man. So all of these things are beneficial. Yes. And you see the hand of God working in this way to bring this about. Right. 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 So yes. there's much good that comes out of this. Much good that comes out of it. And I think to summarize the first two points, uh, it says in Genesis 12:3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. So it's also a confirmation to Abraham's faith. Yes. Of the word of God proving true over and over and over again for the sake of Abraham to build his faith up. Yeah. Correct. Because God did bless those. Correct. They cursed them at first because they were about to curse Abraham, even though unintentionally. Yes. And then they, he blessed them because Abraham blessed them. Yes. And Abraham was the prophet who brought the blessing upon them. Yes. And then it reminds us, however people treat us, God will look at it in terms of how they treat us and how he blesses us and also blesses them or curses them. It's not just for Abraham, but for all of us. Yep. Because we're in Christ. Whatever people do to the body of Christ, Christ will do to them. Yeah. Right. And it brings about, um, you know, a lot of times we do, and, and I think it's rightfully so, that we kind of have a doom and gloom approach to our own culture and the world in which we live, which there is a lot of sin and there's wickedness and there's evil. Uh, yet you see in this passage that there's also the blessing that can come upon a land because of the presence of believers in it, mm -hmm. which was the case with Abraham. He's the only believer. He's the only believing household there, but the whole land benefits because of him. Mm -hmm. So it's not always doom and gloom. It doesn't always bring about Curses immediately, there can be a temporary blessing upon the land mm -hmm. because of the presence of believers and God's blessing upon them. Yes, a temporary uh, blessing on, uh, upon the unbelievers because of the presence of the believers. And remember Joseph in Egypt? When Joseph was sold and became a slave? It says this in Genesis 39. He's in the household of Potiphar, and we clearly know that his wife was an unbeliever and Potiphar likely was also an unbeliever living in a land of unbelief in Egypt, correct? But it says the following after uh, Genesis 39, verse 2, 39, 2. And the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord had caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about from that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field, so forth. Right? So this unbeliever's household was blessed. And even if we say the master was a believer, but not his wife, 
we could not say perhaps or fairly assume that the rest of the master's household were all believers. Yet, whoever was an unbeliever there, especially the wife even, because she's being blessed by Joseph's diligence, right? So she's even receiving a blessing from God as an unbeliever because Joseph is there. So this is what God does. He preserves light, a remnant, good righteousness through the church of faithful believers in a land of wickedness. One other thing uh, I was thinking about and I want to get your thoughts on is you also, I think, in this passage see that sin is being treated here as an like an objective reality. It's not something that's subjective. Even though Abimelech doesn't know that he's sinning, he still is sinning, and there's still guilt, and there's going to be judgment upon him, whether he ever came to a knowledge of what was taking place or not. So the, the reality is, Sarah is Abraham's wife, even though he doesn't know that, and if he would have come together with her, he would have sinned against God and Abraham, and God would have killed him, yes. whether he knows it or not. So sin isn't, though the, the knowledge of the sin does increase guilt and culpability, but a lot of times I think people think of sin, if you don't know what you're doing, then it's not sin. Then it's not sin. Yeah. Right? It's not sin. So you don't know what you're doing, so it's not sin. As if the knowledge itself is what makes it a sin. But here, it's it's not the knowledge of it. It's the transgression of the command yes. of God that makes sin sin. Yes. And brings guilt and judgment. So sin is not subjective. It's objective. And it does not depend on the knowledge of the sinner for that to be a sin. A sinner can sin if he doesn't even know he is sinning. He might be sinning. And that was illustrated from Leviticus 5, 17 to 19. Though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. Which is here as well. Which is here as well. That aspect of it is in Genesis 20. You can be unaware. And this also happens every in everyday life, yeah. right? In the laws of, of uh, any land, you might be... Let's just use the common one of driving. You might be driving on a road where the speed limit sign has been uprooted or somebody ran over it and it's not visible, it's not there, or it's hidden behind a tree uh, or something like that, right? Speed limit sign. And you assume that the speed limit is wrong and, and you're going 10 miles over the limit. You, you, I mean, you assume it's a, a, what it is because based on the road, maybe it's just a straight road, nobody's on it, and you assume you can go, let's say, 50 miles an hour when you should only be going 40 miles an hour. But you don't see the sign, and you think, well, yeah, this must be a 50-mile-an-hour road, so you go 50. And then the police car stops you. Are you guilty of transgressing? Of course. Yes. Even if you didn't know, and you thought everything was fine. Nobody's there, you, could, and it's a straight road. And I can tell you exactly what they're going to say. Because I used to have a highway patrolman as my co-pastor. What he would say, well, sir, driving is a privilege, and it is your responsibility to know what the speed limit is. Here's your ticket. Yeah. So we yeah. can, we can be ignorant of the law and still transgress the law. Okay? But once we are aware of it, then the, the guilt is, is made aware to us, and then we need to rectify that guilt. So, the same in the Bible. But people, but people use the excuse, well, I didn't know it was a sin, so I didn't sin. And people find a thousand and one ways to justify their sin instead of owning up to it. And this is one of them. I didn't know, so it's not a sin. And if, if knowledge is necessary for there to be guilt, then it would be better for us not to tell them yes. about what the law is yeah. or, the, oh. or the, the sin. It would be better for God not to announce this to Abimelech because then it makes him guilty. Yes. If, if ignorance equals no guilt. Yeah. If ignorance equals no guilt, then it's good for God not to reveal His Word. And in fact, if ignorance is better than knowledge, then let's just get rid of the Bible. Right. Get rid of the Bible. Get rid of all preachers and teachers of the Bible. Don't read it. Have nothing to do with it. Right. Right. We shouldn't tell idolaters that they're worshiping idols. Don't tell idolaters that they worship idols. And actually, the people who think that way, that have that mentality, what do you notice often with them? 
They don't, they don't read their Bibles. They don't read their Bibles because they know better that if they did read their Bibles, they need to overcome some of their sins. So it's easier in their conscience to avoid the Bible, stay ignorant of it, and then say that, no, we don't need to read the Bible. They also don't like you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Personally, I've never liked him. That's why I'm here today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, next, Jared. I'll just make a comment. I think this points out to the ignorance of uh, guys like Russell Moore, some of their statements. They're, they're like, we, we live in an age where that, that cultural Christianity, it just needs to be, it just needs to die, go away, all of this, and, you know, let, let everything in the world come in here and it doesn't matter. Then Christianity will flourish, all this kind of stuff. Here is a great example of Abraham. He thought they could possibly be like Sodom and Gomorrah, but they weren't. They, they weren't believers, but yet they, there was that fear of God. Yeah. I think this shows us that one, you know, Mayberry is better than living, you know, say in Saudi Arabia. Yes. Where they'll kill you. Yes. Um, even though they both may not be believers. Right. Um, there's another point I had on this one. Maybe you can remember your point. Let me make a further comment on your point. So your point is better to live in Mayberry or in a in a town where at least everybody is is not passing out drugs. Uh, all all of the the men are not raping the women. Um, there's a fear of God, that restrains. There's a, fear of God a, a general fear of God that restrains their evil. Mm-hmm. It's better to live there than to live in a place where they are. Uh, they, there are two major gangs in, in your town and they are at each other's throats and there's always murders happening overnight. Mm-hmm. And you could be caught in the crossfire. Or they're going to expect you and, and, and pick up your son, your young son, and make him one of their gang members. Or, or one of your daughters and make them one of the prostitutes and stuff like that. It's better to be not around those people. So yes, it is better to be in a place where there is some civil righteousness. I remember what I was going to say. In the last election, you hear these Christians who say, well, I'm not going to get shoved in the corner and do this whole voting for the lesser of the two evils. That, that's dumb. The, the, the one evil, they're going to take away all your rights. They're going to, you know, crucify you, persecute you. When the other one, he may not be a Christian, Yeah. but yet he's not. These guys. He's, yeah, he's not like that. I think that's another example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, one clear example that should be a no-brainer for Christians and non-Christians, for Christians and atheists, for Christians and Hindus and Muslims, for Christians and even Catholics, a no-brainer. Is it okay for a grown man to go into the women's restroom? Of course not. No. No. So we would have had more things like that happening in the country in the, if the last election went the other way. We would have more absurd, absurd, completely absurd things like that happening throughout the country. All kinds of chaos. We'd just be getting there faster. Yeah, we would, yeah we'd get to hell faster. Yeah. But so in terms of civic righteousness, there is a place for that. There is good in that. Well, anybody with a conscience should be voting for a Democrat that supports the murder of little babies. The, yes, yeah, it's they right. openly in, do. In the end, why the heck are they so worried about it now after the kids are in bottles? Because they don't want to, want want their their evil seen. Yeah, that's right. Apparently. That's right. It's not support so much. No. It's 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 vehemently demanding the right to kill innocent children. Right. It's not even supporting it. It's how dare you tell me? And I'm going to change it and call it something else so that this sounds so bad. Yeah, so. Okay, now, yeah. we, we are like Jeremiah. We are like Jeremiah under the Babylonians. Are we not? Yeah, yeah. Be- okay. But it's not that bad because at least some of the governmental officials have some Christian background and they, they claim to be Christians. And there are a few true believers so it's not that bad because Jeremiah was under the Babylonians. They worshiped many, many idols, right? They worshiped many idols. So 
in that sense there is a difference. But what did Jeremiah teach the people of Judah to do under the Babylonians? What did he teach them to do? He said, build houses, Jeremiah 29, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the peace or the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. In, or in its peace, in its prosperity, you will have prosperity. It's mutual, right? We pray, we pray for those in authority that they might bless us. And if they bless us, God blesses them. And we are all living in, in uh, civility. We're living in civic righteousness. We're, we're living in peace. We don't have people uh, banging on our doors in the middle of the night or, or tr- trying to rob us in the middle of the night. We're not, we don't have them passing out drugs to our, our children and encouraging them to pursue all kinds of sin. So that's all good, is it not? Right? Well, that's one of the blessings of trying to reach your community that you're in, where you're living and wherever your church is, is yeah. trying to improve the, the general blessing of that whole community. Yeah. And why, you know, we still are looked upon. We may be avoided at the grocery store because that's that pastor that's over there, but we still do have some kind of uh, thought from people that I need to be nice to them. That's the pastor. You know, that's, yeah. it, it's, it's a lot less than it used to be. Yeah. Used to be, we, we would, you know, 50 years ago, you carried some clout. You didn't go to a um, community meeting and they cared what you had to say, but that may be gone now. But yeah. Anyway. Anybody else? Question? I got a question for you about uh, Abraham's righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, and we talked a little bit about it. there's no Moses yet. And in, in Genesis, what is it, 26 and 5, it talks about him being uh, blessed for, for, for keeping, obeying and keeping the law. And I, I know you've had this question before in other classes, but is this law, what we're talking about, is something that Abraham, uh, a general revelation of what's right and wrong, more than a... Uh, Ten Commandments type thing, uh, twenty-five and six. I think it's both. I think it's both. Every every man, every man knows that he has a conscience and the law of God on his heart, unwritten law on the heart. So that's the first one, and the proof of that is Romans two fourteen, Romans two fourteen to sixteen. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That's the unliterally written law, not on pages, on literal pages, but written on the heart. He says they do instinctively, the work of the law written on their hearts, conscience bearing witness, thoughts. So their thoughts. All of these are words to describe what they have in their inner man. And everyone has that. Every man has that. But then in Abraham's case, after his conversion, he had more than that. He had it deposited in his heart in the new creation so that he had a love for it, not a disdain for it, not a way to practice sin without guilt and to hide it, but now he wants to overcome it. He knows it's right and true. He knows it's good for him. And he seeks the power of God to overcome. Then, in terms of actual words of God, like we have the written word of God, Abraham heard the actual words of God as a prophet because he heard those words and then he taught those words to the people. And for proof of that, Genesis 18, 18, 19, 18, 19, the Lord says of Abraham, Genesis 18, 19, for I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. 
command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Well, what is the way of the Lord? Where is this way found? Chapter 26. Genesis 26. Genesis 26, 5. Genesis 26, 5. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That means God told him his God's charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. Which had to include, at least include, the Ten Commandments. But isn't that a, 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 a evidence of all who are redeemed that they their heart is set on obedience and keeping God's yes. commandments and okay. statutes? Is that not only true of Abraham, but for all who are redeemed? Yes. Yes. Perfect example of that is Psalm 119. David, who composes Psalm 119, he lives a thousand years before the day of Pentecost, and he had the Holy Spirit, he had a new heart, and he longs to obey God according to the commandments of God. He longs for it. Psalm 119, that's indisputable. A thousand years before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost means that David had the new heart by the Holy Spirit who transformed him. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes and keep my laws, he says. The Holy Spirit does this. Okay, and then in the New Testament, are we to keep the laws of God in the New Testament? The commandments of God in the New Testament. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians seven, nineteen. 19. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Circumcision is nothing, neither is, and uncircumcision is nothing, But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Well, then the the average person will say, well, yeah. And the two commandments are love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Okay, that's true. And they say that is the law of Christ. Mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 9, 19 to 27, the law of Christ. Okay, yes, that's the law of Christ, to love. You sh- um, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that is in keeping with the commandments of Christ. He taught that, the two greatest commandments. So then the next question is, what does it mean to love my neighbor? To keep the commandments. To love my neighbor. So it does it mean... Uh, that I'm going to love my neighbor equals, well, yeah, there, there is that woman, she's my neighbor, and I am married, so I'm going to love her too. And the way to love a woman is to have sexual relations with the woman. I'm going to love my neighbor. The Bible says, love your neighbor. Yeah, but that okay? love is not the right love. How, how do we know it's not the right love? Because people today, <laughs> people today in, in Christian churches today, people will say, you cannot get more specific than that because once you get specific, then you are a legalist. That's why we hear that comment that you can't tell us who we can love. Yeah. And my response always is, that's not love. That's fleshly desire. Yes, okay. That's stimulating nerve endings. That's not love. Okay, so what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself if we're supposed to keep it? Romans 13. Romans 13, what does it mean If we are to keep the law of Christ, to love God and love our neighbor, what does that law of Christ entail? Romans 13, 8. 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. 
And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, so the proponents of ambiguity for sin, they say, verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. They say, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Right. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Right. Right. But what's there in Paul's explanation? Verse 9. Verse 9. They cannot truly be saying to love their neighbors and fulfill the law of love if they are committing adultery, if they are stealing, if they are coveting, or any other commandment. They can't be saying they truly love their neighbor. It's right there. James chapter 2. James 2. You know how some interpreters say Paul and James contradict each other? Well, look at this. They are in complete agreement. James 2, verse 8. James 2, 8. 2, 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says the same as Paul. Love your neighbor as yourself, yes. That's easy to say. But how are you going to obey it? Well, he mentions two of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments. That's what they mean by the law of Christ. Because our translators are putting those in quotes and the footnotes are referencing the the Ten Commandments. So even the translators are showing that they know he's quoting from the Ten Commandments. Even the translators know from their method of quotation and from their footnotes that he he is quoting, Paul and James are both quoting from the Ten Commandments. And that was in both Romans 13 and James 2. Both in Romans 13 and James 2. Summarized in this way, not abolished in this way. Yes. But there's summary. It's a summary of the Sum- a summary. Yes. So the six commandments to love your neighbor are summarized by love your neighbor as uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Summarizes the six commandments from the parents to the covetousness commandments. Right there. Okay. Yes. So, brother, I understand what you said about. Uh, uh, David in Psalm 119 and um, Ezekiel 26, 27, 36. So how would you explain Pentecost? If, if that had already happened in David's life and Ezekiel prophesied of it in Ezekiel 36, 24 to 26, how would you explain uh, what happened at Pentecost? What is if Pentecost? It's already, it already happened a thousand years ago. Okay. If the read, so let me say, you're not asking this way, but this is what you intend with your question. If all of this is true of Psalm 119 and David and Ezekiel 36, 26, that they had the Holy Spirit and a new creation, then what does Pentecost mean? What does Acts chapter 2 mean? The question, so the Holy Spirit regenerated people in the Old Testament and he indwelt people in the Old Testament. But he did not give all the believers or uh, the believers generally miraculous powers of the Spirit. But the miraculous powers of the Spirit would be poured out upon the church for the purpose of propelling the gospel on the day of Pentecost. So that's what Acts 2 is. And in Acts 2, this, this is why he's quoting Joel. Joel's predicting this role of the Holy Spirit, or this outpouring of the Spirit. Acts 2.17, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. 
all mankind, all flesh. It says literally all flesh or translated all mankind. And when he says all mankind, he doesn't mean every person in the world. He doesn't mean every person in the world. And at this point, it was only the 120 brethren in the upper room. Correct? So who are the all mankind or the all flesh? It's in contradistinction to only the prophets. Only the prophets of the Old Testament had miraculous abilities, right? Gifts of the Spirit. But in this case, when the church is um, born in this way, or when the church is going to spread in this way to the Gentiles, from Jews only, or mostly to Jews, now to Gentiles, when this church is beginning, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all mankind, meaning what? Not just prophets, but notice, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. See how he mentions different people in the church. Not just the prophets in the church, a certain class or group of people or men, but he says men and women, young and old, free men and slaves. Free men, he's saying, I'm going to distribute these miraculous gifts of the Spirit broadly in the church. From the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And, and it says they shall prophesy. They shall prophesy. <coughs> they shall prophesy. So, so is that limited to the saints at the uh, at the uh, day of Pentecost? Yeah, the initiation of the, the church. Uh, is that limited to them, or does it continue today in miraculous signs through God's elect? Does it continue today in God's elect? I think that in the time of the church or the the book of Acts, in the time of the book of Acts, at that time, it was done to propel, to be a push to the church, to manifest the presence of God and to spread the gospel further. I do believe that it is still possible, but not common. Possible but not common today. And the reason I say that is 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. This passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is used by proponents to say, absolutely not, 100%, nothing happens today. Okay? That's what they say. Absolutely not, 100%, nothing happens today. But I think the passage they use to say nothing like that happens today Absolutely not. Nowhere, any place, any place in the world is 1 Corinthians 13. But I think the very passage they use undermines their argument. Okay. Verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So when will the perfect come? He says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, he says prophecy, tongues, knowledge will be gone, right? Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What therefore is the perfect? Christ. Christ. When when Christ comes, right? The perfect Christ comes. The return of Christ, correct? When we see him... Verse 12, face to face. When when we see him face to face. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now we have faith, hope, love. Then we won't need faith and hope. Amen. Right? Then we will only have love. Does he not mean the second coming of Christ? Of course. A few of you said, the perfect is Christ. Yes, it has to be Christ. And then when he says, I was a child, I did away with childish things, he doesn't mean that early in his Christian life, he was a child, and then later in his Christian life, he became mature, and so he does not need these gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge anymore. He does away with them as a mature Christian. By child and mature man, he means this life and the life to come. Correct? In this context. This life and the life to come. If this is the interpretation, then that's when the prophecies, the tongues, and the knowledge cease. That is, when Christ returns. So the childish things is in relation to what? I prophecy, prophecy, things. tongues, knowledge. Childish things. Yeah. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge. In the immediate context, that's what he's talking about. And would it include faith and hope? And it includes faith and hope. Because he says, now we need faith and hope and love, but then we won't need faith and hope, only we'll have love. Okay? Now, the reason I asked you before I told you what the counter-interpretation is, the opposite interpretation of this that uses this very passage to say, all of these miracles are gone, says the perfect is the end of the apostolic age, the close of the canon. 8100. 8, the close of the canon of Scripture, the writing of the book of Revelation, the last book, the, and the death of the last apostle, the apostle John, 8100. So that is, they say, the perfect. But if you're reading this passage without any kind of bias or any kind of mistaken, false interpretations in your background, and you just read the perfect, you have to say, like a few of you did, not knowing I was about to tell you, the perfect is actually, brothers, the canon. You didn't know that? It's the canon. Doesn't it say that? No, it doesn't say that. So you have to read into it that it's the canon. But it can't be. So they're interpreting perfect to mean completion, of, uh, of, maturation, ending of age or era, the, era or something. Yeah. Instead the of death of the last apostle, John, who wrote the book of Revelation. Yeah. It also says face-to-face there. Face-to-face. Face face. Right. Scripture. Right. Yes. Face-to-face is Christ. It has to be Christ. Which is when we will be perfected. When we'll be perfected. In, in the analogy is uh, yeah. we'll go from being a child yeah. to being an adult. Yes. That's the, the comparison. Yes. So now... If the perfect is the canon of Scripture, the, book of, the writing of the book of Revelation and the death of John the Apostle, if that's what it is, then um, we don't need not only prophecy and tongues, we don't need any knowledge. And all of us are mature, and all of us see face to face, and all of us do not need faith and hope. We don't need faith and hope. If the period is right now, we don't need faith and hope. <laughs> would that also mean that anyone who died before the writing of Revelation, we would be superior to them? Yes. And actually, these interpreters do think we are superior. Which would include the Apostle Paul. We're superior to him. He's a child of the Lord. Because the, uh, many of them say, I Paul... No, I'm telling you. I'm not making any of it up. No exaggeration. <laughs> Anybody with any common sense, when you read that, they don't have any common sense. Because what they're doing, they're trying to take Christ away from everybody. Yeah, yeah, they are. Would you please, in your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and 13.10. 1 Corinthians 13.10 and read your your study Bible notes on 13.10. Yeah, read 13.10. It's a life application Bible is what it is. 13.10. Read it very loudly. Is so the commentary on it? 1310. 1310, the commentary. Oh, uh, guess what? Okay, here we go. 
God gives us spiritual gifts for our lives on earth in order to build up, serve, and strengthen fellow Christians. The spiritual gifts are the, for the church. In eternity, we will be made perfect and complete, and we will be in the very presence of God. We will no longer need the spiritual gifts, so they will come to an end. Huh. That's all it says? Yeah. Oh, that's what I just said. I know, it's okay. agreeable. <laughs> okay, that's good. So this part I can hang on to. Don't tear out Corinthians. Okay. okay, good, good. Because if you pick up an average study Bible, they'll say uh, the opposite. But yours didn't, so that's good. Okay. I believe you. That's why that's what I tell you. Some of this is very difficult for our people to go, well, which part can I... Yeah. Hang on to which part yeah. do I not? Yeah, so to answer your question publicly, he asked me this earlier, and I said, we need to encourage people, and especially pastors, do not ever become a pastor unless you read the Bible five or ten times. And as a Christian, don't be dogmatic about your beliefs unless you have read the Bible at least five to ten times. The whole Bible, when I say the Bible, I don't mean parts, whatever you feel like. But Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Re read the whole Bible five times to ten times before you have confidence and conviction to be able to make pronouncements on things like this. Because you, we get a lot of baggage in our life, in our upbringings and backgrounds, whether we're believers or unbelievers, about what is or isn't in the Bible. And it's hard to overcome it unless you have all the facts on the table. A doctor can't do his surgery on you unless he's got all the facts on the table. A car mechanic can't do all that he needs to do to your car unless he's got all the facts on the table about what exactly is happening with your car, right? Or any other matter of life, get all the facts on the table and then make pronouncements. Then do so. And if you were raised in church, you probably ought to read it a hundred times more. <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah. But then not, not only once that you... Mean, now. That was just <laughs> Yeah, but not just five or ten times, but keep having this practice throughout your life. No doubt. Maybe. Throughout your life. The whole Bible. I do have a question. I think I've talked to you about this before, but you mentioned the passage in Acts about prophecy. Um, yeah, young men, young women prophesy, you know, some will say, well, that's a proclamation of God's word, that, like, as far as preaching, well, we know women don't preach. Um, Paul, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, where he assumes, or it seems as though he assumes women are going to prophesy, only they do it in a certain manner. But in light of this 1 Corinthians 13 passage, and what Paul says in 14.1, Pursue love, earnestly desire the special, uh, spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. What, what is prophecy here? Okay. There's a lot of discussion about that. Okay, prophecy has to include prediction. Gotcha. People try to define prophecy uh, precluding, excluding pre prediction, but it has to include prediction. It has to. Because even when you are preaching, you are saying something in your preaching about the future. Right? Christ will return, the day of judgment, the resurrection, heaven and hell. You're saying things about the future. So in a sense, you are predicting the future. It has to include that. Um, and this gift was given in Acts chapter 21, 21 verse 9. Now this man... Philip the Evangelist, Acts 21.9. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Right. That means that he did intend for it to be for women to have this role. Yeah. So for women to be quiet or for women not to teach or exercise authority over man, that has to do with the role or office of pastor but not that they have nothing to add or nothing to say to the church. Right. That's not what it's talking about. They should do it in their own humble and gentle, respectful and orderly way. They should do it that way. But it's not that they are to be compu uh, completely mute. Someone in the back? Yeah. What I was going to say, you know, I've heard stories 
uh, of places like in China, where uh, there was a story I heard. There was a itinerant preacher who got up to preach, and a brother in the congregation spoke out, spoke during the meeting at some point, and said, "I feel in three days." that God is saying to us that some will be in prison, some will die for the faith, and so forth. And According to the story, it happened just like that. What would you say in situations like that, that would be a prophecy? It could be, yeah. I don't know if, the, I don't know the facts of it, but let's just assume the facts are correct. If it was true, yeah. Yeah, then, yeah, that could happen. Sure. That could happen. And it's not like these clowns out here who are like, yeah, some new revelation. It's, that's not prophecy. Okay. You know. Okay. So then you said the clowns. The clowns out here, and they're also in China. Yeah. Okay. The clowns are also in China. They're in China. They're in India. They're in Canada. They're in Mexico. They're everywhere. Okay. Yeah. And they're in the United States. The clowns are everywhere who are frauds. Yeah. Okay. And they don't do it the biblical way. And they contradict the Bible with their doctrines. Yes. Right. Okay. They say it's a word from the Lord and then they contradict the Bible. That can't happen. So whenever somebody does that, we have to be very careful with what word that they're announcing and we have to test it according to Scripture. Yes. Right. And, Which is what 14 tells us to do. It talks about judging. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 14. It, yes, it does tell us to judge them. Now, there are a couple of ways to test them. One way is their teaching, the content of their teaching, and that is Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, the content of their teaching. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes around and he says, hey, listen, the, word, the, the Lord gave me a word and he said that, you know, we, want, we, we need some money and it's okay to go over to that neighborhood bank and to rob it. Okay? Or... Or, or, or young man meets young woman and says, you know, um, you know they, they like each other or whatever. Um, I was really praying, I was re the man or the, even the woman, I was really praying, I was really praying, I'm really praying about our relationship. And the Lord said that though we can't get married until next year, he said we could have sexual relations. People do that. Okay? People do that. So what should you do? Or, you know... Um, my, my, uh, my, the Lord told me that my father or grandfather, though he was a Mason, or though he was a staunch Catholic, or though he was a Muslim, or though he was a Hindu, that the Lord told me he's in heaven. He's in heaven. And then, so it doesn't matter. Theologically or morally, if they contradict the Bible, we know those things are not in the Bible, sure. Right? If they contradict the Bible, they are seducing you. Don't listen to them. Okay, and then with the example that you presented about something happening within three days, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. After describing the prophet to come, that's Christ, 1820 says, Deuteronomy 1820 but the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Right. 
When a, word, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Okay, now, if this, if this man says that in three days some of us are going to be arrested and thrown in prison, well, that seems like a sensible thing for which to be cautious, right? Yeah, it sounds sensible, right? In, a, in a, a country of persecuted Christians, it sounds sensible. So be cautious. It doesn't hurt you to be cautious no. about that, right? Yeah, that's right? Okay, and then wait for three days and see if it actually happens if there was somebody in the church who was careless about that. Or even if he was cautious and somehow the authorities still found him, that something happened or attempted to be happening in three days. That the authorities did show up, but they found nobody in the room. Right? So if that did happen that way, then you can know, okay, let's wait the three days and see what happens. Meantime, since it's a sensible thing to do, to watch out for ourselves and, and, to, and to not come to that place, that meeting house or wherever it is, not come in the three days, let's see what happens. However, if he says, listen, the authorities are going to come in three days, so, but they, they are going after you people, and God told me they're not going to come after me, so give me all your money. Now, when he says something like that, then you need to be suspicious, right? Be suspicious. So use your mind, use the Bible, understand what's going on, how people are. And then the, the, another factor is, is the man saying it a reputed man in the church? If he's known to mouth off, if he's t known to be a little wild with his thoughts and words, then you have to be cautious. But if he's known to be a godly man, then take it seriously. Take it seriously. Okay, is that all? Well, then also, you mentioned, uh, so you had that the example, both in Acts, uh, where it said this will happen, and then the, or in both in Acts, early and later, where there's the women who are doing this as well. But when they're prophesying, they're not usurping authority, they're not fanatics and wild women who are seeking to overturn the proper roles of men and women in society and church. No. Those types of things. So no. They're not uh, elevating themselves to these positions and seeking to do that. Correct. Right? There shouldn't be any usurpation of the men. There shouldn't be any chaos. There shouldn't be any um, any erratic behavior, weird behavior. They shouldn't be doing anything like that. When we were studying judges in chapter 4 and 5 with Deborah, though she was the judge and she was a prophet, she still wasn't usurping. And there were still men. She was still a wife who had a husband. And it, she was identified according to her husband. And then she also was working alongside of Barak. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Thank you for coming. God be with you.